Foxley is all about helping people to feel confident in dealing with difficult customers, build trust, and strong relationships. In this podcast, we talk to talented people to share insights and tips on how they do it. Welcome to Thinking Outside the Fox. Today on the podcast, I have Caroline Gosling. Caroline is a partner at Rubica Change and Analytics, an organizational change consultancy focused on improving people's experience of work and customers' experience of organizations. Caroline's had 20 years in the industry, working both in consulting and a range of roles at GSK, and has included corporate, public affairs, marketing, medical education, and employee engagement. She currently partners with organizational leaders and the teams that they're accountable to, to diagnose and address the mindset, behavioral, structural, and system blockers to delivering on the potential and the promise of customer and patient centricity. She's particularly interested in how we reassess what good looks like in our efforts to be a net contributor within the challenged health and human systems. She's also a trustee of the Uh, Blue Cross, the National Pet Welfare Charity, and is a fellow of the Royal Society for Arts, Manufacturers and Commerce. It's great to have you on the podcast, Caroline. Hi, Chris. Nice to be here. Um, So you focus on change, change and organisational change. Tell us a little bit about some of the things that you do and and some of the challenges that you face. Yeah, absolutely. So um, it's such a cliche, isn't it? Change is everywhere and we're all going through change all of the time. Um, and I think some of the, those changes are just rolling with the punches. That's what we do as part of our jobs now. And then there's other sorts of change which feel more significant, which feel more um, potentially like a loss to some people. They feel like we're letting go of some things that still matter. Um, and we want to invent things and introduce things that maybe we haven't conceived of before. And it's that sort of change that we tend to get involved in is where it's, um, you know, we've got a sense of the direction we need to um, things to be different in. We know roughly what's not working, but it's all a bit messy. It's all a bit confused and it's full of human emotion. It's not just a rational system introduction, for example. We've got a better way of doing something so that, and that, that, that's obvious to everyone. Um, so we do a lot of that sort of change, the change that involves people letting go of things and imagining new futures. The, one of the words you used in there was loss, people mm. feeling a feeling of loss. And my experience of change often is that it's all it's framed as positive, always uh, framed as positive. We're moving forward. We're making positive changes. We're going to be better. We're going to be whatever. I don't think people often think about what is going to change that's a loss and a negative. And I think you've just immediately picked up something which is probably one of the biggest barriers you face when it comes to making changes. Yeah, yeah. And I I know your theme at the moment is, is understanding. And I think that that understanding the change holistically rather than just the positive um, is something that I think we often miss, all of us miss, because we're quite often the people who've designed the change or conceived of the change, quite often senior people or a project team, you know, of course they're invested, of course they think it's a good thing generally and usually they've had a lot of time to think about it before it's announced or shared with the wider organization so that bit of 
you know, and, and, and frankly, the talking about all the things that are bad about the change feels counterintuitive. It feels like you want to sell it to people. Um, but actually acknowledging how humans are around change and that there will be good things that are working that we're going to have to let go of and that might cause pain to people is one of the key things, I think, to getting a level of understanding in the organisation in all directions. So not just the people receiving the change, but everybody understanding what this change actually means. Yes, where the benefits might be realised, but also being really cognizant of the things that we're letting go of, that we're choosing to move on, on from. So it is conscious. It's not accidental loss. Organisations that do this well, that implement, well, first of all, there's a, there's a yes, no question, maybe. <laughs> do some organisations do this well? I think some leaders do it well. Um, I'm not sure I could imagine a, a single institution that's just consistently got change right. Although I'm sure there are people out there who are inside an organisation going, yes, we have, um, in which case, awesome. Um, I think... I think it comes from how leaders think about what the change is for and why they're doing it. So if the change is, I've got a brilliant idea or my shareholders have told me this needs to happen or we've come up with a future for this organisation behind closed doors and then we rely on just telling the organisation this is what's happening and quite often doing it just as you alluded to in a way that's all focused on how exciting this future is going to be I think that's that those are the organizations that do it less well even with great intent I think the ones that do it well are the ones who really look at it holistically and 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 get people involved as early as possible it's such a cliche but it so rarely happens of listening to the end user experience, what is actually going to change for these people? Because honestly, the leaders have no idea. They, No matter how in touch you think you are as a leader, you have no idea of the reality on the ground because you're not doing that job. And change where people get involved from the beginning, a part of forming the change, are the ones that tend to be more successful. Yes, you can be clear on the guardrails, as a senior leader, but for goodness sake, don't believe you can design the change in isolation because you just can't, you don't have enough knowledge. But that's where risk uh, exists because that's the risk that if you're a leader and you're making a change that you're not going to get the change that you want. And yes. I guess that's a fear that leaders have that, well, if I allow the people to be involved in how we change, then it might not be the thing that I actually want to happen. Yeah, absolutely. And this comes down to one of those things that we might need to let go of as we embrace a different way of working, thinking, being in the world, being part of the world, especially as corporates, is this idea that there is a right answer and that some all-knowing, all-seeing person has that right answer. Um, because we're all muddling through, like so much is happening that we don't know how to do yet. Um, surely there is opportunity for us to work that out collectively, point one. Um, secondly, as I've said, 
as a leader, you're getting one vantage point. And quite often it is quite a broad vantage point. You might have more of a view of the future from your position in the organisation. You might be accessing more information about the strategy, but you don't know how it feels on the ground. So collecting those views is important. So you do have to come into this with a sense of we've got a direction of travel, but how we get there is something that I am going to involve people in and not just in a kind of you know my background's in engagement not in the involve in the way that you just have lots of Q&A sessions so that people can chat about it after all the decisions are made but actually believe in your people enough to think they have valuable thinking to contribute to how this will happen if you want to become more productive more profitable change the world whatever it is that you're seeking to do downsize the more you can actually and harness the ideas of the organisation and let go of your own preconceived ideas about what good looks like, the better, I believe. So one of the things you said there was leaders having a view of the strategy. So they might have more information about the strategy. Um, One of my observations and and sometimes frustrations is that the front line of an organisation is that is the organisation. So whether that's customer services or whether it's representatives on the ground or whoever it is, the people who are interfacing with your customers every single day deal with 90% of those interactions um, are the face of your organisation. And I always feel that companies miss that. They often try and focus on things like their brand and their identity and, and they forget that these interactions, hundreds and hundreds of interactions are happening each day that shape how your organization is perceived. But when you're just talking about strategy and information and insights, one of the things that strikes me is that there's a great source of information that I'm not so sure leaders tap into and trust. So if they're trying to make decisions on the direction of the organization and they're basing it on their knowledge of the strategy and they don't engage and listen to the people that are talking to their customers every single day, they're actually missing an opportunity, aren't they, when it comes to making these changes? I I think so. Um, and I think the key word there is the, the one you used is, is trust it. So quite often, and I've been guilty of this myself, you kind of, you get input, you might have the best of intentions, you want to hear the reality from the people who are, you know, doing the real work and all of that. But it's very easy to cherry pick from that information or insight, the bits that reinforce the narrative you've already got in your head. So it's very, and to disregard the things that contradict that. And certainly in change, we quite often see, oh, you know, there's some change resistance in the organisation when actually it's just either people haven't had enough time to process the change, or they're just don't agree because it doesn't fit in with the experience that they're having. Um, It doesn't necessarily mean that the decision needs to change, but factoring in the reality that people are telling you about with an open mind has got to give you a better chance of getting, in inverted commas, the right solution at the end. But also it makes such a difference if people feel like their views are valuable. And, you know, we've got engagement surveys coming out of our eyeballs that say, have that as a question, you know, is is my opinion valued? And a lot of the time people say no, and leaders get frustrated because it's, oh yeah, it's because we didn't do what they said. 
Is it though, or is it because actually when you went to ask that question, your intent was to influence and hopefully make any dissenting voices go away rather than say, ooh, do those dissenting voices mean we should relook at this? Should we now think differently because we're hearing from people we've employed um, that this might not be the right direction to go in? It's exactly the same challenge that I hear between buyers and sellers across every single industry I work on. Um, buyers don't feel as though sellers listen to them. And buyers will say uh, that although you tell me that you want to talk to me and you want to ask me questions and understand my business, you're only doing it with a strategic intent to influence me. And we, on this podcast, we're talking this series about understanding. And understanding has to start with an open mind, with a with a genuine interest in what am I talking to this person about because I want to hear them, not because I want to influence them. And, you know, and I think you just touched on that really nicely that I, I might go and talk to my people, but it's not genuine interest. And the other thing that you say, I think is, is really important is recognizing that we never ever speak without adding our own filter or our own spin <laughs> onto something. So there is no truth. There, no, there is no purity of fact that I will share with you that isn't at least tainted by some of my own interpretation, my own connection to that. And I don't think we're honest about that either. When leaders talk about change, they're not giving people all the facts and allowing them to make their own decision. They are, there is always a spin on there. And therefore, it's, it's, you know, sharing information and talking to people it isn't just about the purity of the message being the right message, because, of course, once you know this information, you too will agree with me. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. So much in that to, to unpack. And you now I'm really conscious that I don't want to sound like I'm beating up leaders or being super critical, because I think this is actually just human and leaders just kind of mm. are at the pointy end a lot of the time of, of some <laughs> yeah. of this change stuff. Um, and, and feel accountable for it. And there's a lot of, like I say, good intent behind that. Um, but I think, I mean, everything you've just said, th there's almost something about when we think about how we, you know, we've got a change that we're planning or we've got a conversation we need to have or we want to impart some information and we want to bring people with us and that's always our intention. Um, and we we either go into kind of transmit mode, so we carefully craft our narrative and our key messages and we get this really compelling story really thought through and we've thought about what's in it for me and we've done our personas and da 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 and then we go and sort of transmit this story um with actually with with little of it touching the sides through the mm -hmm. leader so quite often in big corporates it's kind of like here's your communications pack around this change and then you will go and present this and and leaders diligently do that but it's it's not being translated it's it's not that acknowledgement of it's got to go through my own filter first I need to process it first I need to understand what the implications of this might be for me personally for the organization for the teams that I'm accountable to and for um either that happens or we quite often get um you know, a kind of umbrella leader who's like, you can't handle the truth kind of thing, which is the bucket <laughs> I'd put the, you know, the, oh, change is always going to be a distraction. We need to keep it quiet for as long as possible. Everyone in the organisation always knows something's coming, like it's, and that's more distracting, <laughs> like, but, but it's almost like we can be, we can disrupt 
and keep working like that is possible for humans like but yeah. but distraction is a watch out and my experience is the more people have information the less distracted they are actually because most of this distraction comes from wondering and the what if yeah. and there is a third way i think which is kind of leader as translator both ways or all ways within the organization so letting go of the idea that your job as the leader of change is to tell people the answer and direct them towards this positive future, but instead say, how can I be a, a conduit for a brilliant conversation in the organisation that leads to something better is a different way of framing it. So leader is translator of all thinking into something that's actionable. Yeah, <clears throat> I think it, going back to the theme of understanding that there's two things I think are really important here is understanding yourself, your own um, need to um, filter, your own need to position, your, your own need to understand yourself what's happening. Um, I think that's really important, but also then understanding how your people are going to feel and how it feels to be told of change rather than to be consulted and genuinely engaged about change yeah. and also understanding that no one has the right answers we look yes. a lot at uh, businesses that are successful and there's been a lot of research harvard a classic at this of looking and analyzing organizations that have succeeded and then rep and then understanding what it is that they did that worked but i don't think it's all retrospective it's always yeah. backward looking yes. and some of it is fortune you know the right product at the right time or um, the wrong, the right product at the wrong time. All I can think about is is companies like Pets.com that went bust, bust in 2000 and they were selling pet food online um, to get people to deliver it to their home. Now, if they, if they launched today, they'd be fine. But in 2000, people weren't ready for that. And the, the carriage costs were a huge problem for them and logistics were a problem for them. Um, but it's the right business at the wrong time. And, and so we don't really know what's working, what's not working. And and therefore, whenever we make changes, it's our best guess. And I don't think we understand that either. There's a, there's a sense of, oh no, we, we're doing this because we know the right answer. I, I couldn't agree more. And I think the thinking around change that used to be, we're here at point A, we're going to end up at point B, and therefore we can plan a route between those two things is not totally redundant now. I mean, there are some changes that are very simplistic that are like that, but it's much more now about if you can help people have a shared understanding, truly shared, so not brainwashing people into your way of thinking, but co-create a sense of where you want to be and why together, then people will make good choices in that direction. So the change will start to happen not naturally, of course, you still need some scaffolding around it. But the idea that we can, you know, roadmap change, and we can plan this clear line of sight, when actually, things are changing all the time, we get new information all the time, we try stuff, and it doesn't work to your point, and we have to adjust. Um, all of that does require a different way of thinking about how we create understanding in organisations. So, you know, the old way of A to B, so we'll tell you what B looks like, we'll sell you on the benefits of that, we'll de deliver, develop a compelling narrative that includes this vision of the future that we're all moving towards, and we'll give you a roadmap to tell you how we're going to get there. 
we just need to let go of that a little bit because it's it's not helpful and actually it can be a hindrance because people get wedded to it and then new yeah. information crops up and we're it's it's a moot point yeah we start again yes. so let's let's change direction slightly we've talked a bit about change but let's talk a bit about getting it right so if you're if you if you're working with an organization and they are trying to make changes they're trying to uh, implement new ways of working or new policies or new strategies um, what does good look like then about going to your people understanding them and engaging them what sort of what sort of excellence have you seen over the years yeah so um i think one of the things that marks out I'm sort of wary of the word excellence, but what marks out difference, that it feels different, feels noticeably different when it happens in a in a positive way, I would say, is when um, there is very early engagement. So where there is a level of trust in the organisation that, that, that people feel able to say to people, we're not sure what this is going to look like we're going to work it through but we trust that you will help us by inviting you into this conversation so they are very um and i can already hear sort of sharp intakes of breath from some of the <laughs> listeners around oh gosh but we don't want to open a can of worms too early um i think it is that moment of asking people for their opinion their advice their guidance across a whole range of different parts of the organization early around a conundrum that's being grappled with so you can frame that conundrum in quite a positive way sometimes and it can be built on things that are, are going well so it could be you know how do we continue a trajectory that we've started but asking people to give their advice, give their opinion, give their guidance before you've reached a decision is a is a key one. So there's something about the timing of when people engage that feels like it's different in organisations that do this well. Mm -hmm. And underpinning that is it's almost more than trust. It's, it's faith. <laughs> you know, it's yeah. having faith that having those conversations won't immediately cause everybody to run for the hills or um, panic and start doing random stuff. Like, just trust your people, you know, have faith that they're they're good humans. Um, the, thing, the thing that sorry, excited me there in Caroline yeah. uh, that you said was presenting them with the conundrum. Yeah. Because I just, I just love the idea of getting you know, I imagine small representative groups from across the organization and saying, this is the problem that we're facing. How would you solve this problem? And it becomes like hive mind that yes. you're then starting to see what it, what it is. But the other thing that you're doing is you're allowing people to draw conclusions about what will work and what won't work. And, um, and you might get solutions that you hadn't thought about. You might find that, you know, somebody comes up with a, an idea that you didn't come up with, but those people are already invested in whatever that solution is that you've come up with. Yeah. Now, as long as you, as you talked earlier on about the guardrails and you're saying to them, just because you have, you're involved in this doesn't mean we're going to follow your solution. But even if your idea reflects something that came out of one of those working parties, then 
you can genuinely say that you engaged your audience or your staff or your teams in that change. You understood their solution and you are going to build on it and, and use it as part of the way that you're moving forward. Surely that's a genuine way of making progress. I think so. And, and it, you know, the thing that you've called out there is that it's, in, it's group conversations that's the mechanism that works well for that. And that's powerful, A, because you are getting all the things that you've just described, but B, because the sum of its parts is bigger than the whole, uh, is, the whole is bigger than the sum of its parts. That's the way around. Right, 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 right. <laughs> yeah. Because what you're also getting from those conversations is people talking to each other. So it's not bilateral. It's not mm-hmm. sort of doing a round robin. And that's where new ideas form. So something that might not have been useful when someone blurted it out becomes useful through the process of that conversation. And at the same time, people are having the opportunity to start to process the pros and cons, to start to see why, you know, their initial idea might not work, to start to understand why some tough choices might be coming, to start to be part of all of that thought process that normally happens in eight people behind closed doors. People are getting chance to process that information as you go. Mm-hmm. So what tends to happen in those situations is you don't get wacky ideas or silly ideas or all the things that people can sometimes be scared about because the group kind of mitigates for that the group kind of peers are very good at kind of shaping something that's a bit ridiculous into something that might be workable yeah so the additional sorry go on i was gonna say there's plenty of research in that that yeah proves it yeah absolutely absolutely but we still sometimes stick in the old ways but you know we're all learning all the time. But, but I think it's part of that, as you said, you know, is there an understanding that as a leader, you don't have to have all the answers? And I think if you go to an organization and say, hey, this is the problem we're facing. How would you solve this problem? There's a risk that people have that they are admitting they don't know the answer. And yeah. that's uncomfortable. But I think that's part of leadership is is that that's the way you've got to, to face up to it. Um and I and I think that's it's it's the courage of the leaders and the capability of the leaders to admit that I actually we want to involve you in finding the answer to this that I think really empowers that change. Yeah, totally, totally. And you're right, it's letting, you know our perception of leadership is still you know, we've all been brought up a lot of the time in this idea that you do need to have additional wisdom. You do need to have the answers. You are quite often put in the position where you are accountable for making hard choices and you can feel the weight of that. And there are lots of reasons why letting go of some of that weight um, can feel uncomfortable, as you say, but it doesn't have to be an either or. It doesn't have to be kind of, I don't have any ideas on how to fix this. So, oh my goodness, please help me. Um, it can be, you know, I've got some great ideas, actually, that I think will work, but I have this really narrow view. Even if you're at the top of the tree, you're still only seeing one slice of the picture. So yeah. I need to get other perspectives to make my thinking more well-rounded. Feels feels more comfortable for some people than just, you know, yeah, I don't and know you the could, answer. And you could engage the, the teams on the detail. So you could yes. say, look, that we've got four options. We're going to give each group one of these options you're going to now spend the next half a day working through how it might look how you would implement it how what are the problems that you foresee what are the opportunities that you foresee what's going to have to change and let them work on those four models and at the end of it you can then you know you've guided guided them initially with 
a framework, but then you're allowing them to fill in the spaces and, and color, you know, color it in and, and enrich it and make it yeah. come to life. Because yeah. that's where you're going to notice the things that, that didn't necessarily fit or you had missed because you didn't have time to think through the details. Yeah, absolutely. And, and you know, listening to you describe that, I can already imagine maybe some people thinking, oh, that feels like a big heavy lift. That's a lot of time out of the business. All of these conversations, lots of people being in the in you know, taken out of the business in inverted commas. But I think that, and yeah, it is an investment, especially if you're doing it in a massive organisation and you need to do it at scale. It's a big weighty thing. I'm not denying that in any stretch. And you are a million times more likely to then have a smoother ride through the rest of the change. Yeah. And if you spend probably not that much different amounts of effort and energy, but in a smaller group of people, carefully crafting slide decks and announcement messages and, you know, sexy videos and all of this sort of stuff yeah. that then gets launched on the organisation to, uh, to blank faces. And yeah. that's when you get hackles up. That's when you get resistance. So... It's just yeah. investing differently. It's not necessarily investing more, but it feels more like an investment because it's more visible, it's more present, and it's involving, hopefully, all of the organisation for a period of time. And I think that's the nonsense of change, right? That people will say, we need to get through change quickly. And I've heard this a lot. We need to implement change quickly and to move on. Let's not dwell on it. The longer it takes, the more painful it's going to be, the more costly it's going to be, the more expensive it's going to be. Um, and so as a result of that, what they then try and look for they are the easy to implement solutions that they think will just be quicker to do that and, and less yeah. complicated to do that. Not yeah. necessarily because it's the best thing to do. But then they find that that's because it's not an ideal answer. It causes such turmoil, such conflict in the organization that um, if they'd invested this time up front, they might have had a more complex solution, but it would have been much more easy to implement because they didn't have all the resistance and all the problems that came with trying to find a shortcut, trying to do it the quick way. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, we know that now when we impose change on people that they don't like, they leave. And you know how much hassle is that going to cause your organization um and actually i want to correct myself because it isn't just about change they don't like you can absolutely introduce changes that not everybody is going to be a winner from you know people might not like but it's it's when you do it in a way that is falsely positive all that stuff you said at the beginning people will leave and we know we're seeing this at the moment with some of our clients where a change you know has happened people didn't like it the way it was done and that's causing people to go we didn't do the change just want to put that out there yeah <laughs> <laughs> you're picking up the pieces yeah. well not, not necessarily but someone's having to pick up the pieces that's for sure yeah 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 now I, and i was just reflecting on my experience of change i worked in pharmaceuticals for many years and I experienced much change um i have to say since i've worked across industry i see that pharmaceutical industries the pharmaceutical industry makes more change than anybody else i it was every two years you knew that your company was going to go through a restructure every two years the sales force was going to be restructured and um you were waiting for it to happen you knew it was going to happen and i haven't seen the same in any other industry 
I haven't seen other industries restructure as often as pharmaceuticals. Mm. Now, whether that says something about the pharmaceutical industry or not, I what don't know. What do you know. think it says, Chris? What, what's well, your guess, best guess? I, I sometimes wonder whether it's, it's, it's rearranging deck chairs on the Titanic. There are fundamental challenges with the way that pharmaceuticals is built and the way customers interact and the way that organizations operate. And there is there are there are people seeking ways to do that better always seeking ways to do that better um and reorganization seems to be something regular and i think it's also it becomes a little bit habitual um that you know we've always done this and and i see a lot of the same faces through the pharmaceutical industry in that um i don't think it's great at bringing in people from outside experiences um, outside the pharmaceutical industry. Um, it's not the only one who does this, by the way. I see this in, o- in other industries as well, where they, they become kind of focused on needing to understand the technicalities and, and the science of their own industry. And therefore, they're not great at bringing in talent from other places. Um, but I was talking to a client yesterday, and they they work in category management in FMCG. And they went to another company who works in fmcg in a non-competing category and went and watched how they do their job Mm. just because they wanted to learn and and i thought wow that's really trying to understand what great looks like and how we can learn and one of the things they came away from was wow that is really simple the way they do it is much more simple than the way we do it and perhaps we can learn from that and they were prepared to step out of that and and not say they don't understand us it won't work here <clears throat> and so um i thought that was amazing and i and i wonder whether there's a bit of habitual in pharmaceuticals that they that there's an there's an instinct to do things that have maybe worked in the past or maybe have have been implemented in the past yeah yeah i i definitely recognize that description from my experience in in pharma and kind of being of that mindset a little bit myself I think there's you know you get you get points I think some of the time in pharma for for preserving the status quo for keeping things working the way they have always worked Um, because it's an industry that's been so successful you can kind of understand that that there's still a lot of people who are working in it who you know they the it's a it's a very successful industry that's done incredibly well over a long period of time and so the temptation to just repeat that with sort of nibbling around the edges stuff occasionally must be very strong and I also think there's something in what you said around you know that kind of willingness to to go outside the industry but also to go to you know there is a lot of um preciousness is the word that's in my head around the sort of you know it's so precious and unique and you know we've got a very specific set of circumstances and that that makes it hard for people to translate from outside our industry into the the sort of rigid format that we've got it feels very um feels very rigid the industry and not very responsive um but I do, I do have hope. You know, I, I see, I see that changing. Actually, I see that there is, you know, there are people who are really 
starting to do things slightly differently now. And I think some of the smaller companies where they're, they are able to throw, tear up the rule book a little bit are doing some of that. But I have heard people say, you know, I could only do this in a small company. If I was back in one of the big ones, it wouldn't be possible. So I think there's also something about what we believe as an industry is possible for us, you know. Do we yeah. do we have a sense of possibility or are we slightly resigned to to it yeah. being so hard to make anything different happen? And, um, and and I think that's a great piece of understanding and insight is that the industry is very successful and organizations that are making change are always making change from the, from a, a relative point of success. They're still successful and profitable. It's rare that you see a a pharmaceutical company on the verge of bankruptcy being forced to yeah. make significant changes. And if you look at other industries like the technology industry, and I'm reminded of Ben Horowitz's stories when he talks about his experiences of um, building organizations, that they were on the verge of bankruptcy and cash flow was almost zero and they were having to make changes. And knowing that actually it's never that bad, <laughs> It's, yeah. It is about making changes because we think we can rearrange things a little bit and make them better, I think is 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 a good piece of insight as to why people maybe are cautious of making too significant change. Yeah, yeah. And maybe it will be that we do need some significant disasters in inverted commas to, you know, to 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 provoke something genuinely different. But I... I have to believe we're coming towards that point through, I mean, COVID in itself, you know, the number of people talking about how things have, do feel different now, not internally yet, but in terms of what's historically worked and now doesn't, and is therefore causing people to change their thinking, not just their structures. Um, You know, it it does give me hope. I think there's something as well in, you know, back to that success story is one of the things with change is we quite often assume we've got almost like a blank canvas and we're overlaying, especially with things like culture change, you know, right, we want this sort of culture. So we're going to create that and we're going to have a change program that's going to create that sort of culture and we're going to do a behavior framework and la 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 la. Um, but actually, you're never starting with a blank canvas. You've never got nothing there. So there's something I really like, um, you know, Chip and Dan Heath's talk around bright spots so finding those tiny micro moments of brilliance within an organization and they tell a brilliant story about Gartner who were able to find you know these specific behaviors that their highest performing sales teams were doing and they were really specific like it was something to do with diary planning I think like literally diary management was what was making the difference but they really went into you know they use kind of ethnography to observe what was actually going on in people's natural settings rather than doing market research that's a topic for another day but they went in there and they really understood what was causing that difference in a really specific micro behavior so what was making those people bright spots and then they focused on amplifying that across the wider organization and I think some of the time especially with things like restructures it's easy to do it on a piece of paper and then impose it on the organization wholesale the harder things to tweak are where have we got behaviors mindsets that are really making a difference that are really helping move this organization forward in a different way how do we amplify that how do we replicate that how do we spread that throughout the organization versus blanket overlay something on top um 
And I think there are ways to do that. We know organisations, back to your question earlier about where excellence hits, that's excellence to me is organisations that are doing that. Yeah, no, I totally agree. And I think that's that's a, t- a complete different mindset around change of understanding that we are doing some great stuff already. Let's find those places and amplify it. One of my pet hates, by the way, is best practice. I, I, it is a phrase that I, I loathe. And Adam Grant wrote about this. And he, which I just totally, when I, you know, sometimes when somebody <laughs> writes something and you agree with yeah. it and it really sticks in your mind. Yeah. And he said that best practice implies that there is no way to make it better. Yeah. He, what he wants to talk about is current practice. And, and I totally agree with this, that there is no best practice. It's not complete. We are constantly learning, but there is a current practice, which is doing, which it seems to be doing well. And it's how do we spread current practice? Not how do we spread best practice? But I, I love that as a thought. I love that too. I love that. That's, yeah. Yeah. There's something about kind of enough in that as well, like good enough, which I think sometimes we, all of us, um, especially those, I don't know if this is a farmer thing. That's my, I have no idea. I'm, I'm talking outside of my sphere of expertise now, but there's something about this sense as well that whenever we do a change effort, it has to be perfect. So we have to have, it's back to your thing about the answer, even if it's been co-created, it has to be perfect before we set off. And, yeah. and, and just getting something that's good enough, you know, marginally better than what we had before feels like it's not worth the effort or if it's only marginally better then it's not worth but if everybody's marginally better then surely it is i mean again we could have a whole debate around better but um yeah dave Dave brailsford has made you know such an impact on cycling from one percent everywhere and i know people leaders across industries have adopted the dave brailsford mindset but when it comes to change if you said we're going to change our organization we're going to make everything one percent better they wouldn't take it it's not worth the hassle they'd say no no, because our belief is that change involves vast swathes of consultants, you know, thousands of man hours and woman hours and gender neutral hours behind the scenes, planning, plotting, doing joint planning sessions, getting post-it notes out and whatever the modern equivalent is, Miro boarding. Um, <laughs> it, th- that's the belief that that is what it takes. Whereas I think, you know, lots of people have shown that it doesn't have to be that way. It might be small tweaks. Um, you know, it might be diary management that's going to help. Um, yeah. But but individuals need to work that out, not just one project team sitting in a room somewhere. Yeah, totally agree. Totally agree. Caroline, it's been a wonderful conversation. Um, as ever, we've run out of time, but I do want to ask you our final question. So let's learn a bit about you. What advice would you give to a 12-year-old you? So, uh, um, lots of different advice, but the one that feels most present right now is to trust my instincts or trust your instincts if I was talking to myself as a 12-year-old. Um, I think it's very easily to, easy to be very externally referenced in today's world. And I love reading, I love talking to people, I love learning things, but I absolutely believe my best life choices have been when I've gone inside and listened to what my instinct is telling me so trust trust your instincts and uh, in the other way around it's been the worst decisions when I've failed to listen to my instincts yeah great insight 
great insight. Caroline, share a little bit about you and Rubica, how people can find you and, and what, what you what your philosophies are. Yeah, so you can find us online and in all social channels. Um, we are about, um, wholeheartedly is a word we often use about ourselves. We, we're about being wholehearted. That's our philosophy. Um, and that means we're in it with our clients, with customers. We care, we're bothered, we're invested. Um, we're not um, there to judge, we're there to enable and we absolutely believe in that stuff we were saying at the end that it's about finding the good finding the pockets where it's working well or differently and thinking about how we can amplify that yes you know we do like a plan of course we like a plan we like helping people build a plan um but we're very much about using the planning to help everyone come with us rather than forming a plan that we then tell people so um yeah, come and find us if you want to transform capability or culture in your organisation. Beautiful. Thank you very much. Wonderful to chat to you. And you, Chris. Nice to speak. That was Thinking Outside the Fox with me, Chris Weber. Our next episode is out in two weeks. Join us for more great conversations on how to build winning customer relationships. I'm looking forward to it.